0: You are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. I am Brian Benham.
1: And I am Greg Porter. And tonight's topic is the unhealthy pursuit of perfection. If you've been making anything for any length of time, you un- you understand what that chase can be like. And when you get your first taste of something that looks really, really good, and then you put it under the microscope, I th- I think we're probably all guilty of this. When you show someone your project, what's the first thing you point out? Is it the mistakes or is it the good stuff? I think we, we tend to point out the mistakes. And that's a, a huge indication of, of this sickness that would be chasing perfection. Most of the time, my experience, if you did not point out your mistakes, no one would ever see them. But Brian, I'm certain that you've had projects where it's gone over the cliff. because you're chasing a certain, certain level of, of perfection or greatness or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and, and at some point that's got to end. Have you, have you got any example where that drove you to the brink?
0: Yeah. Just about every project. I think, uh, as, as a custom furniture maker, I, one of the Goals of my business is not to build the same thing twice, or or to always keep trying new things. And so, when you're always trying new things, you're always trying new skills that you may have never done before. And I just finished a project um, recently this last week that really like brought me to the point of insanity. Uh, I have never really done a lot of sculptural work before, um, so I was a carving thing where I was carving leaves and branches. And uh, there was a lot of unknowns going into this project. If I could really pull off how the leaves attach to the branches, how one branch attaches to the other branch. So does it look like I just used a hot glue gun on there? And uh, I, I started carving these leaves and one side I was like, yeah, that looks pretty good. But the other side looks not so good. So I started carving a little bit more off of that. And then pretty soon I kept going back and forth, back and forth. And all of a sudden the leaf that was appropriate size was now too small because I'd carved it away and I'd have to start all over again. And it was just like this thing that, that it was a huge learning curve for me because it was the first time I've done this type of thing. And it just, I, I had a vision in my head of what I wanted the leaves to look like. Uh, but it was really difficult to get there, especially since uh, when you look at a real life leaf, it has all kinds of flexibility because of the branches supple because it's still alive but when you're working in wood that's dead you need a little bit more mass in the in the twigs to make sure they don't break and can hold up and stand up on themselves and finally my wife um you know comes out in the shop every once in a while sees what's going on and she thinks like that looks good and she finally tells me like you need to stop because you're gonna just this is unhealthy stress for you that you're going through. The client's going to look at this and they're not going to see the uh, imperfections that you see. They're going to look at that and look at it, see the whole branch, the whole branch with all the leaves on it. And so now it's like, okay, I'll, 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 I'll let it go. I'll, I'll stop or put it in the box and ship it. Well, I
1: think in, in that particular case, you know, you look at the leaf that you're agonizing over and then you look at, look at it in the context of the entire piece. And we have to always ask ourselves, you know, what hill are we going to die on here? Right. And, and is it, is it this small detail that someone, someone who gets up close and starts breathing <laughs> on your piece can see, or is it something, you know, as you back up from the piece and you're at arm's length, what's the appropriate amount of detail. And there, there was, um, one of my mentors, uh, always talked about he was he was one of my mentors in watercolor and he always talked about abstraction and what level of abstraction is appropriate and when you're painting in an impressionist style there is a lot of abstraction but there's also a lot of detail and you can there are watercolor artists out there paul jackson comes to mind if anybody wants to have their mind blown look up paul jackson watercolors he's maybe one of the best watercolorists alive, but his paintings are insanely detailed and it's a medium that was meant for impressionism and ab- abstraction. And to to kind of get to the point here, when we start any type of a piece, any type of an artistic endeavor or any, any type of a making endeavor, creative endeavor, we have to ask ourselves, what level of abstraction is this piece going to have and and if the answer is it needs to look photorealistic and it's made out of wood that's the wrong answer but somewhere between a a chunk of wood that that looks like a tree and photorealistic is your answer it's just a matter of where on that scale is it going to be
0: yeah to to piggy off piggyback off of that on another pursuit that I've been working on is improving my drawing. If you if you go back to uh, previous podcasts, I can't remember what we titled that one, but it was um what's the what's the name drawing of the book?
1: on the right side of the brain by yes. Betty Edwards. Yes. yes,
0: drawing on the right side of the brain by Betty Edwards. And one thing that I've learned in that book. Is that uh, you can't worry about every little tiny pencil stroke. Um, you have to just kind of let it flow, and where the pencil stops, the pencil stops. And if you look at other people's artists where they have done Sketches, and you're think, wow, that sketch looks really great. But if you zoom in, then you can see places where, like, oh, that finger isn't a perfect finger; it's just a representation yeah. of a finger.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And gosh, uh, this goes back to some life drawing classes that I used to, to take. One of the uh, one of the teachers that I had, I'm trying to think of his last name. His first name is Gary. He passed away. He was a wonderful instructor, but he he made us hold our pencil at the other end, and he's like, draw that way. Just push the lead across the paper. It will force you. It will force you to concentrate on shape and and volume and, and things other than perfection. Like if, if you if you hold your pencil like this in a life drawing class, you're going to draw eyelashes, and that's the wrong thing to do. And and uh, you have to get through so much in terms of what what is the uh, oh I'm trying to think of the right word uh, the gestalt is, is the word the French use, like what makes this thing it, what is the it here? And it's, it's not the eyelashes, right? It's, it's when you see somebody's silhouette walking away from you and you can recognize that person, how do you recognize them? It's not the spacing of their eyeballs and where their nose is on their face. It's, it's something about their silhouette. And that's a very abstract thing. And it's a very, uh, round and non-detailed thing. And I think that's an incredibly important thing, whether you're drawing or whether here's a great example that I've seen a lot of on Instagram. I'm not sure what spawned this. I'm sure there was a maker out there who did a chip carving. Have you seen any of the chip carving stuff going on lately?
0: A little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah, there's a there's a, a number of people doing these chip carvings. That is a great abstraction of making things out of wood. I saw a spoon the other day. You know, it's very faceted. Spoon, and you could easily grab your eighty grit sandpaper, and then your one hundred and twenty grit, and then your two hundred and forty, and your three hundred and twenty, and your six hundred and two thousand grit sandpaper, and make a polished spoon. But it's enough to have just the the blade of the knife carve that thing out and make an abstraction of a spoon. Still works. Still looks like a spoon. Everybody knows what it is. There's all kinds of imperfections, but let it be what it is.
0: Yeah, that that also is uh, taking away part of the story if you sand it really smooth, like seeing the knife marks and things tells that story that this is hand carved That somebody sat, you know, like when I see things like that, I think about like grandpa sitting in a rocking chair, you know, whittling on the front porch back in the, back in the day, kind of a thing. And so that, that kind of tells a story when it's all sanded perfectly smooth. That's that tells a different story. So um, I think there's, there's things that uh, you might not want to go take to perfection just because it ruins the story.
1: Absolutely. I, you know, one of the things that made a huge impression on me and you know i i don't like talking about my travels around europe because it makes you sound like a jet setter or something like that i i spent a little time over there as a student and while i was there i spent all of my time every waking hour that i could possibly spend traveling and seeing things that's what i did i don't think i could afford to do that as an adult <laughs> and i'm glad really glad i did it as a young person and and not so much that, that Europe is, is special in any way that, that the States or Canada or anywhere else isn't special, but they have a certain density of art and creative things that came out of the Renaissance period. And and some of the other movements in art, uh, surrealism, you know, was, was focused heavily there uh, with Salvador Dali and, and some of those other artists. It, but you get to see a lot in a very short period of time, and you get to see people who did things two or 3,000 years ago. And there's this great museum that sits in uh, Florence, Italy, behind the the Duomo, and I don't know the the right name for that chapel, but people know it pretty well. It's the most famous building in Florence. But there's a museum that sits behind that, that are all these blocks of marble that Michelangelo and his team started to carve but never finished. So you'll see this block of marble with an arm sticking out of it. And these fingers that are completely finished, the palm is is rough, chiseled, and then down here is just blocky. And it gives you this really bizarre look into what it took to polish out the marble. When you see the marble with rough chisel marks in it, you realize how much work it took to get it to a polished state. And now, was Michelangelo chasing perfection? Absolutely Uh, He didn't chase it as an individual. People make that mistake all the time. He had folks who worked for him. He wasn't just one man doing all those things. And that's how he was able to accomplish so much. But when you look at those blocks, you realize that it doesn't have to be polished to send the same message. Now, sometimes the message does need to be polished, whatever, that's your artistic vision. But sometimes it can be done in rough stone and it's equally uh, equally as polished. I'm trying to remember the artist's name who did, who does all of the, uh, the karate poses and they're, they're in these huge square chunks, but you can see exactly what they are. It's, it's pretty amazing artwork, but it's so minimalist and uh, so abstracted and so well done.
0: You're talking about uh, the, uh, how the fingers were polished and then the palm was a little bit rougher and then it was even rougher. That's a really kind of tells part of the story about the process that they went through like that's different than my process because i will just rough the whole thing and then come back and do another pass and then another pass and then another pass and then that's when the insanity comes in because then i'm just like down to that chasing that unhealthy perfection again but
1: well and to that to that point brian i think we're all we also sort of have the the goldfish syndrome is kind of how i I talk about it or how I relate it to myself. Sorry, I don't talk about it. I relate it to myself. If you put a goldfish in a small bowl, it's going to stay small. But if you put a goldfish in a big pond, they grow much larger. You know, they they grow to their surroundings. I think our time is that way too. If we give ourselves an infinite amount of time, we will continue picking on something until we're one foot in the grave. And I think 100%. one of the one of the healthiest things to avoid the uh, this practice of chasing perfection we're all chasing perfection there's no doubt about that but but the unha- the unhealthy part is expecting it and being upset if you don't achieve it i think there's there's a line but one of the best tools to avoid that is to have a deadline and to honor that deadline cuz we can all work to a deadline and then the deadline comes and goes and go well, maybe i could just put another week on it yeah <laughs> And sometimes it, sometimes things require that. And it's a really weird thing, right? At some point, we've got to decipher. Did I stop too short or did I go too far? And where is that line?
0: Yeah, deadlines uh, are are my saving grace and my nemesis all, all in the same thing. This particular project I was talking about earlier about carving the leaves was for an urn. And uh, the client was coming back from... Uh, the funeral home on a certain date. And so he was hoping I could have it finished and shipped at his house by that date. So that way, when he got home, he could just put the ashes in to the urn that I had built. So I would have loved to have several more weeks to practice carving leaves before I committed to the final, like, okay, this 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 is the final leaves that are going into the project. Uh, Cause you know, your first, your first attempt is going to be, you know, whatever it's going to be. Your 10th attempt is going to be a better, but your hundredth attempt is probably going to be like mastery level. And uh, when you have a deadline, you don't have, you don't have that uh, time to do a hundred leaves to practice. And even if you did have, didn't have a deadline, uh, if you're working Doing work, uh, if you're working for a living, that's what you do for a living. Yeah. Your bills will give you a deadline because at some point you got to ship to get paid.
1: Absolutely, you're right. And most of the stuff I do on the creative side of things, I don't have deadlines anymore. I I am freewheeling as as you can be, because I don't I don't generally. That's not where I make money. I don't have to worry about that feeding me and and my wife and whoever else but you still have to you still have to have those targets and other things now we we talked about some projects that kind of grow a little stale because you put them off the side or you you know whatever that's a different that's a different thing altogether in that you know would a deadline help that progress maybe but sometimes it's healthy to put things aside and focus on wh- whether that's things that are making you money or things that are more interesting or what have you but but definitely Um, even, even when you're not working for profit or not working to put food on the table, it is, it is unhealthy to chase that. And what I would, what I would say is this was your first foray into leaves and carving leaves. The next time somebody comes to you with a concept that's similar, you've already got that rep in and your next group is going to be at a different standard and your 10th or 15th or 20th one. Is going to be yet another standard and you mentioned a, a while back about some joinery and how that's progressed in your furniture over time and I think that's just it you've you've got to understand what's appropriate for the to time frame that you have for the project you have the clients' expectations and all of those things and then say okay, this is where I'm going to stop on this one because it's a little bit of an experiment and the next time I get to do something like this I'm going to take it one step further and maybe Maybe instead of just adding the main uh, trunk to the leaf, maybe it'll have some veins on the next one. And then maybe the next one after that has different size veins. And maybe after that, I look at the edges of the leaf and they start to get a little more detail. But whether it's wood carving or watercolor painting, do you think your first watercolor painting should be a detailed cityscape? No, it should be a cube with a shadow, maybe, (laughs) because that's how that's how you learn to to develop, you know, what is this thing going to look like? How does how is it going to act?
0: Yeah, not to sound cliche, but you know that whole saying that life is a is a journey, and uh, when a, from my first client to where I'm at now is just a totally different mindset and skill set and quality level than my first client. And my first client was happy with what I built then and he was just part of my beginning journey. And this client uh, that I just did the leaves for, he's part of my middle journey. And then as I, as I move on and I'm I'm pretty proud to be part of his father's end journey as part of my middle journey. So yeah, it kind of all just, it just works out and things just keep progressing. And as long as you're working with people that have that understanding that everything you do is just a stepping stone to the next thing. yeah. it's it's, there should be no reason to stress about uh, all of that stuff
1: there shouldn't and i'll say i'm not an art history scholar but i've paid a lot of attention to some particular artists in my life and here in denver uh last year two years ago so during COVID, shoot it all kind of squishes together i apologize but they had an exhibit at the Denver Art Museum that was the la- largest collection of Monet paintings. I think that had ever been assembled and that will ever be assembled because the uh, galleries who lent out their artwork for that said that this would be the only thing they would they would be. But they arranged that entire exhibit as a chronological history of Monet's painting, both style and technique. And you could see, you know, it started with his earliest paintings, and they were fairly realistic oil paintings. And it was like, here's Monet copying somebody else, right? Like this is somebody else's style. It's not his style. And then you could see it slowly detach from that other person's style and become his. But there was still that level of what I would call realism. And then somewhere in the middle of his career, you could see the experimentation that he started to go through. And I think that's when uh, the big group of impressionists formed. I think it was in France. Um, but there was a big group of people and that was, you know, water lilies and all those things that people know Monet for. It took him a while to get there. But then when you see the paintings that he did very late in life, they got even more abstract and more blocky. And so the longer he practiced his art, the looser it became and the less obsessed he was with perfection and the more obsessed he was with how does this color interact with that color or what is the feeling of this entire painting? And his paintings also got much larger. So instead of working on a canvas that was maybe his early, early paintings were maybe like 18 by, by 12, something like that, fairly small canvases, his his final canvases were almost eight foot tall. And he was working with a brush on a stick from 10 feet away. <laughs> and, wow. you know, it it. It was because he realized that, that the expression that he was trying to convey had nothing to do back back again, you know, had nothing to do with the eyelashes. It had to do with the entire scene and the colors and how it was going to make you feel. I think when we look at woodwork, uh, a lot of, there's a lot of really well detailed joinery in pieces. And that that is very important. You got to have well-designed joints and this and that, but there. are there becomes this expression in when somebody learns to cut deta- uh, dovetail details and then they want to do outline dove detail, dovetail dovetail details, holy cow. And then they want to do half blind outlined, you know, and this stacking of things, which does take some talent. But then then you start to step back and you go, well, what is this piece trying to say? Is this about the wood and the grain or is this about you and your dovetails? And, you know, that's an important question, because if it is about you and your dovetails, then you need to go crazy on them, right? Why not inlay them with pearl or something? But if it's about the wood and the the expression of the overall form of the piece, it may not be about that little weird dovetail. And that's why you see, I think, a lot of master carpenters, they will allow themselves to play like that, but they will hide it so that you have to open the drawer to see it. Or, you know, you'll have to go around the back of the piece to see this crazy inlay thing that, that nobody sees from the front. And those are those are things that I think help us when especially early in our careers when we're trying to chase that one thing we saw in a magazine that we don't think we could ever build, right? Back up and look at look at some of the other the other things that these people have done and how they a lot of the big famous artists will actually back away from detail the older they get.
0: Yeah, I I kind of relate to your dovetail thing like when I first, you know, started seeing that I saw like where they do the dovetail and then uh, it's inlaid around the outside. And I was like, well, how how does that happen? Like, how do you do that? I want to know how to that, <clears throat> excuse me. I want to know how to do that, you know, because like back in the day, I thought like, if you don't know how to do everything and a client asks you to do that, you're going to be a failure and your business is going to fail. And so I like was obsessed with trying to learn everything. And and uh, if I could go back and tell my younger self, just don't don't worry about all that crap. But But I was obsessed with that little dovetail thing. And I went to learn how to do it. And then after I learned how the sauce is made, it's not as impressive. And and uh, I lost interest in it. And so I never used it in a piece. It was just a practice piece to to do. And I never used that inlay detail in a piece because then I was like, okay, I did it. I want to go do something else now. So, uh, I think, yeah, you're right on with the like people lose interest in some of those things as they, as they progress. They do.
1: And I think one thing that might be important to talk about in this conversation, Brian is when you are chasing perfection. Um, there's, there's a gentleman that I follow on YouTube that makes drums. And I find that fascinating Bales, B a L E S you should watch his channel. Um, they make drums, they make custom drums, they redo old drums, anything to do with percussive instruments. They are the guys to go to. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of their drum shop. I think it's, um, it's Cass, uh, shoot, I'm I'm going to screw it up if I try and guess at it. But uh, anyway, if you check out Bales, you'll see it. But when you're finishing the shell of a drum, you do want it to be perfect. Like how do we get to that perfect thing? And they recut bearing edges and they do all of these things to, to drums to make them play better. And again, it's, it's that approaching the perfection piece. But the one thing I've learned from watching them make drums is the more tools, the more jigs, the more things that you have that make repetitive tasks easy and accurately repeatable, the closer you're going to get to that perfect piece that you're looking for. If, if, say, for instance, you're trying to drill the holes for the hardware in a drum and you don't have something to drill those holes in the exact same location every single time, there's no way you're going to get a drum that even approaches perfection. But once you solve that one little problem, now your brain can go on to the next thing that needs to be solved to get closer to perfect. And this is where auto manufacturers come in. You You go back to the days of the coach builders who hand formed panels over wooden bucks. Every panel was slightly different. They were as good as they could get them and they got put on a car and shipped out the door. And as, as these car manufacturers started developing, you know, the die stamping process and some of those, some of the finishing processes where they took all of the error out. So as you're actually creating things, there's no error going in. You're not trying to remove error at this point you you've solved that problem now you can get on to the next thing and now we're to a point where the paint film on a car is down to you know the the micron type measurement and it's perfectly smooth and polished all the way through the entire vehicle rewind the clock you know to the the guys on the english wheels and the hammer forms and there was no way they could achieve that level of perfection even though they were striving for it but if they would have tried to do that they would have probably driven themselves nuts trying to produce cars at that level. So uh, what I'm what I'm trying to say in general is if you if you are in the making space, the creative space, whatever it is, one of the ways that you get closer and closer, it's that it's that graph that bends up, but it never touches the line, right? You're never going to mm-hmm. hit perfection, but you're going to get closer. And that way is making sure that you have you have methods and tools in place, that help take the error out of whatever it is that you're doing.
0: Right. As your tooling progresses and gets better, your work will progress and get better just because that tooling is allowing you to get better. It's kind of like that, uh, that saying that, uh, all the trolls use, I could build that if I had all those tools, it's like, well, sure you can, but you don't know the, uh, the process that it takes to get all those tools so you'll never you don't have the understanding of the fabrication so uh another example just to throw out there uh when i was working on this restaurant uh project i had all these bars that went back and forth between the legs as a decorative thing and i wanted them all to line up perfectly uh so that way they didn't none of them were crooked and it all went together and it was all square and the table set square and i spent quite a while developing a process to be able to drill all those holes accurately and quickly i spent probably more time developing the process than i did develop than i did actually drilling the holes because once i had my jig perfected to where it worked well and everything came out accurate um drilling the holes became became not a non-issue it just the the jig worked and the holes lined out perfectly and also you gave me a good suggestion so thank you hey on, on that
1: that's i i think that's uh that's a whole different topic for another episode here probably but uh it's important to pass on what you know, right? Like, yeah, there's only one way that we all get better. And that's to help each other. And if you if you have a even even sometimes if it's the not not the final winning idea, passing along a thought can alter somebody's course, and really put them on a different track. But I think um, sidestepping sidestepping error is is an incredibly important thing. I mean, you look at some of these people that are in factories making parts. I, I don't care what it is. Like you can you can sort of pick up anything. Well, of course, I don't have anything here that's manufactured. Um, here we go. Here's a, a bottle opener that I have close by. Like there's some guy in a factory that probably had to polish these two edges, but at the end of the day, when he got that part, there was probably very few errors in it to start with, and mm-hmm. and uh, the hope is that if you get to that level and, and, you know, again, are you copying the last piece that you made? Are you making the next piece better? You know, there's a whole, there's a whole line to that, but as far as sanding goes, let's, let's just say you had sanding blocks that had waves in them. That's going to introduce error. You know, you're not Mm going to be able to avoid that as you go, but anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm off on a tangent there.
0: No, that's, that's good. The sanding block thing is, is a true thing. And, there's oh man do do i want to go here there there is a very large youtuber that did a sanding test on sandpaper to see which sandpaper performed the best and his test was primarily speed it wasn't of what the finish was so it's how how quickly what will it remove the remove wood and i watched that and i was like well that's not the sandpaper i want to use i don't want to use a sandpaper that use that just takes off wood so quickly because in my process that i have dialed down that i only go one pass per grit once i get to the higher grits um because that's all i need when there's another tip out there that people say use a pencil and mark your wood well the grain of the wood is way more porous than the scratch pattern left behind by the previous sandpaper so, you're really over sanding. So, if you use that really aggressive sandpaper, let's say you've dialed in the fit of a panel to fit perfectly into a dado and you sand through all your grits and you use the pencil thing. Now, all your all your uh, panels are too loose, right? Yeah. Or they're not perfectly flat. Like that, uh, that sandpaper has a whole bunch of holes in it. And so the paper is not very rigid. So, it's going to follow the low and soft parts of the grain. And so, if you want a perfectly flat tabletop, you're The more you sand with that paper the less flat you're gonna get
1: interesting i hadn't thought about it in that uh from that perspective brian
0: yeah i feel like i should cut this out because he's kind of a big deal on youtube and i'll probably get some hate mail from it but but no, i feel like his whole his whole premise is is wrong like like speed is not is not the act not the way to do it if you need to remove a lot of material you should use a hand plane or something
1: yeah i well here's what i would say if there's anybody that's going to spew hate because you said that i think i think as a creative community we've always got to be adding to what the last guy did it's not a dig that he doesn't you know this person doesn't know what they're doing i don't i don't think that's it it's that they have a standard for what may make sandpaper good in their mind but it's maybe not in the finishing world it's in the Hey, I got to take off a bunch of material, which one, which one's going to wear out faster or remove stuff the, the quickest and, um, all of those kind of things. But I, I am one of those guys when, when a piece of sandpaper gets used up, I meant to do that used up. Yeah. It goes in a drawer. And then later on, if I, if I don't need 240 grit, but I need 300, which isn't a thing, I'll pull that 240 Used up piece out and put it back on the DA and soft sand with it is kind of how I think about it. Like I, I need to hit a 240 here, but not a full hit.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> and and 320 might be a little too, might not be enough. And uh, uh, an old body guy taught me that long ago. You know, when you opened up his sandpaper drawer or his sandpaper cabinet, he had a bottom drawer that just had all these pieces of paper in there, and he said, you you just never know when you're going to need a half step. And, and he was 100% right, but uh, w- one of the other directions I was going to go here, Brian, is in the machining world, when you see a print for a part, it has an error factor on the print. Every machined part has an, an acceptable allowance for error. Sometimes the acceptable <laughs> error is 0.01 inches, which is just shy of an eighth of an inch, so a tenth of an inch. Um and sometimes it's a thousandth of an inch or a hundredth of an inch, and sometimes it's a ten thousandth of an inch you know so is it a human hair? Is it a, a tenth of a human hair or is it a hundredth of a human hair? And it's all about the application for that particular part. If you have to grind in a part to a ten thousandth of an inch, that's a part that is in an area of a machine that can have zero slop uh, and so they'll they'll define that and I think when we look at our creative projects, even if it's DIY stuff in our garage or our home shop, there there is a healthy uh, amount of that error that we need to define before we start the project. So, is this a thousandths of an inch error, or is this a hundredth or a tenth? And that that might be in the finish. You know, are you okay with a few swirl marks? Does this need to be perfectly polished out like a mirror? And what happens is that winds up driving the way that you make these pieces if you know you're going to have to put a very high solids finish on something so you can buff it out to that mirror shine you're going to approach that different than something with a matte finish that can take a lot of lumps and bumps that nobody's ever going to perceive because the light doesn't refract off of it in the same way
0: yeah so to bring this all the way back to sandpaper yeah (laughs) um like knowing what your knowing, what your end goal is, is, is very important. Like if you're, Oh man, let's see now down. I'm sticking my foot in my mouth. Cause last episode, I talked a little smack about Festool that, it, that it broke because my, I had, I have three Festool sanders and two of them broke uh, prematurely. Like, but anyway, so, but the best thing about Festool sand, the Festool sanding system is, uh, is that you can buy different si- types of pads. So if you're, yeah. Ah, uh, sanding a tabletop, you can buy their rigid hard pad, and that is going to give your sandpaper a lot of support uh, to make a flat tabletop. If you're uh, sanding some kind of round or sculptural type of piece, you can get the really soft pad that will conform to uh, the shape of of your sculpture and be able to sand. And then also the sandpaper. Uh, back to sandpaper again. Festool has different types of sandpaper. Two of the most well-known ones are the red paper, which is the Reuben, and the granite yep. paper, which is blue. And a lot of guys use the blue paper because uh, it's more expensive, so in their mind, it's going to work better. But uh, I have both in my shop, and the reason why I have both in my shop is because if I'm sanding a table, I'm going to use the Reuben because the backing on the Rubin is stiffer, and it makes the uh, the rigid backing of the sander stiffer and so that whole thing is very stiff so it creates a very flat surface especially if you sand over like a, a mortise where the tenon shoulder of a tenon needs to hit you don't want to round over any of that so if you sand over that with some of the softer sandpapers then your shoulder of your tenon doesn't seat as tight and it looks looks sloppy so i have both papers and i use the Reuben for most of my furniture stuff and if i'm Sanding something that's round, or I have a rounded edge that I need to sand over, then I'll put the softer pad with the granite paper because the granite paper is more flexible and will sand around those corners more.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Brian. I've I've got more sanding apparatus in my shop than I feel like one person should have in a lifetime.
0: You but can never have too much sandpapers like clamps.
1: It's I have. I'll I'll share this because I, I you know. I think a lot of our audience obviously are the DIY maker world people and everybody learns from, from everybody when we share things like this, but when I'm doing finishing, whether it's on guitars, whether it's on cars, whether it's on furniture, doesn't matter. I've got sanding blocks for different levels of finish. So if it's something again, that's going to be rough, maybe I'm going to put an oil finish on a piece of wood. Uh, it It gets a block that's really fairly soft. Then, if I'm working body work that's going you know that's uh I wouldn't say rough stage, but it's going to be finished pretty nicely then then you get a mildly flexible but pretty stiff block. They get longer as you want things to be straighter, right? and uh these are these are hand tools. they're not plug-in tools, right whether whether that's pneumatic or or electric. And then when you're finishing clear coat, uh, I have plexiglass that I use and I put sandpaper on plexiglass. And that gives you an absolute razor sharp, perfect surface, maybe not perfect surface, but damn near perfect surface. And uh, I I think it's important to talk about that because, again, that goes back to what are you going for? Well, if if you're spraying a car, or you're spraying a high polished guitar, like I have a few back on the wall, they got to be flat, flat, flat. And that's the only way to get them there. You can't get something flat with a flexible block. It doesn't work. You can get it close, but you can't get it flat. And you know, if your thing has curves on it, well then maybe that is the right, right piece. But then, you know, I go back to if I sanded some of the wood things that I finished in oil with plexiglass, what a waste of time. There's no reason no one would ever see it. <laughs> yeah. so it, it's it's being appropriate and and defining what that level of finish is or that level of error is that you're going to be okay with.
0: So this is more of a curiosity question, so I'll take a little a little bunny trail here. but uh on you ha- you sell at skyscraper guitars these sanding blocks for shaping the fretboard of your guitars, right? so yeah. How, uh, two questions really. How critical is that radius? Mm. And then how, how far do you sand those? Because that's going to get uh burnished by the more you play the guitar, right?
1: Yeah, well, you didn't know this before you asked that, but I have one sitting right here. So, yeah. the visual for everybody who's, who's wondering this is an aluminum block, it's machined on this face and it's machined to a specific radius here. Uh, this machine surface were. Under a thousandths of an inch deviation over a foot. So a foot, there's less than a thousandths deviation from end to end in terms of flatness across this radius. So if you were to put a straight edge down here, it's going to be perfectly flat within a thousandths across that entire radius. Okay. How critical is that? That's a great question. Um, and it it comes down to how persnickety is the player that you're setting a guitar up for or building a guitar for? Every guitar neck has a bend in it, slight bow, and you have to have that because as you press the strings down, the string vibrates a certain amplitude and it will hit the frets. If it were perfectly flat or if it were bowed back, that string would hit the frets following where, where you have the note fretted. So there's a relief to a neck. So even if you flatten a neck perfectly with one of these, you're still going to put curve back into that neck. So it's not going to be a thousandth of an inch from end to end on the neck. Um, so So there is a certain amount of error. What I can tell you is your professional players, the guys who are out on the road all the time, they can tell within a thousandth or two if it's right. And they can tell fret by fret, area by area on a fret exactly where all the problems are they can they can point them out that fast they can pick up a guitar and 30 seconds later tell you where all the problems are it's amazing um but that said i have you know we have tools and i've probably shown these on the show before we have fret rockers that are again super super flat you can rock between frets and find all those little errors and sometimes the sandpaper actually has more error in it than the tool you're using
0: to sandwich, yeah so that's the flex of the of the paper right. yeah
1: yeah there's there's grain in it there there's a, a sticky back part of it that that is flexible there's all those things so as we go through and i'm a pretty particular guitar player as well like i can i can generally pick up a guitar and tell you where all the problems are i'm not as good as the guys who play eight hours a day but i'm pretty good at it because that's my mind but but i'll go through guitars after i after I fret level them for people and play them, trying to find all those spots, but I'm I'm very particular about it. And I'll go and file half a thousandths off a of fret if I think there's a problem there. And you find a lot of those things when you're bending notes. So you have a radius going this way, you have a radius going this way, and a string that you're moving over that compound mm-hmm. uh, curvature. So sometimes they're they're evident, but it is I, I think you have to have control within easily within a, a thousandths or two a, at the professional level, you're probably half a thousandth is, is where your target is. But then like you say, you flatten these frets out. You, after you flatten the frets, you actually go in with a crowning tool and recrown them and you hit everything, but about the middle ten thousandths of that fret wire. And you leave that uh, however the sandpaper left it or your files left it and you polish them out. Um, again, it's it's not the same polishing process that you would use it's similar but it's it's uh, much less sandpaper grit uh, when you hit it with higher grits of of abrasive it's very very quick you're you're not taking off any material you're literally just trying to flatten that surface a little bit to make it shiny to make yeah. it feel better
0: so I promise we're gonna get off the sandpaper train here. But yeah, yeah. Just back to your your comment where you said sometimes the sandpaper makes the yeah. tolerances worse. So that's kind of like one of those things that that uh, the tool you use, you're only going to be able to be as perfect as that tool that you're using. in, in a lot of cases, um, mm-hmm. unless you have some way of overcoming the uh, the tool, um, which also happens, there's all kinds of tools in my shop that have little uh, finicky things that I know if I push yeah. it a little left. On it it'll it'll get it back into whatever back into tolerances so back to our uh, our topic of the unhealthy pursuit of perfection uh, mm-hmm. I know as part of your business, you help people set up their guitars and you tune yeah. tune it up and get those frets all dialed in when you know you have a client that's very particular how how stressful is that? is that become an unhealthy chasing of the frets
1: it- it can. Um, and interestingly enough, as human beings, we're all built differently. And some people's ability to perceive things is at a higher level, right? And when you have a client who can perceive something that you can't perceive, uh, the example that I would use, not in guitars, but but something I think that most people can relate to, you go into Home Depot and you see the big uh, bare paint display with seven thousand colors of white and you start to put those whites together you'll get to a point where some people will say i can't see the difference between those two whites but then somebody else will be like oh no that one's way more red than that one you're like how do you see that it, it, we just have different levels mm-hmm. of perception yeah and in the music industry uh that exists and it exists to to a uh to a precision that that almost outpaces what electronics can perceive. There are some people that are so, um, how do I want to say it? Tone sensitive or pitch sensitive that any minor deflection in pitch causes them to, well, you know, that's not right and i've actually had clients here in my basement for 3 hours going through this one note on this one fret just isn't right and i'll pick the guitar up and play it and early on i can usually be like yep okay i i got it yep i can i can hear what you're hearing and then i'll fix it to where i think it's fixed and they'll go it's still wrong mm-hmm. it's like uh-oh <laughs> I am now out of my league. I can't perceive this. And and you have to be very honest with people that I I believe you. First off, I believe you. I believe that you're having an issue, but I can't perceive it. So you have to be my ears and you have to tell me when it's right. And you have to tell me if we're going in the right direction or we're going in the wrong direction of fixing it. And um, I've had people in my basement as well that are uh, the shred guitar type. Like they can play a thousand notes a second. And it's amazing to see some of those people play the dexterity and and like how well they move. And so much of what they do is the pick jumping over strings that by the way, some of them are depressed and some of them aren't. So they're at different levels. And they're able to to jump over them and make these moves, and they'll they'll get to a certain spot on the neck or a certain thing where, their pick is getting caught up in the strings and they're like I can't have this and so you start looking at it and it's no longer about did I flatten this thing within a thousandth of an inch no no it's did I did I flatten it in the way that allows him to play and so maybe I have to actually change the angle of of the entire group of frets that he's having trouble with and and again those are just marathon sessions you dig in and you say hey I will do whatever it takes to make this work for you. You just have to give me that good feedback. And you have to ask one thing I have learned, and and I'll stop talking about this. You have to ask really good questions when you get into those situations. Because if you don't ask the questions, they're just going to be frustrated and you're not going to know why and you're not going to understand how to fix it. But it, it goes back to, you know, you can't give up on it. And at some point, you know, you can back up and say, this is as good as I can possibly get it for you. Do you have other guitars that are better than this? If so, can you bring them to me so I can see what they did? And generally, what it is is uh, what's the saying when when, you, um, when something's a problem, you start to magnify it? Mm-hmm. And so so the the fact that you found one problem makes it feel like that problem just intensified. And so sometimes taking ten minutes away from that, like, I'll grab a guitar off the wall, play this one for a second. What do you think of this? Is this terrible? No, that actually feels really good. Okay, now let's pick your guitar back up and play it again. And sometimes that breaks that cycle.
0: Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, that's all back to where we started of uh, the perception that uh, my wife says, well, he's going to look at the whole branch. He's not going to look at the individual leaf with the microscope that you're right down there with your eyeball carving that thing. And he's looking at from the far away. And then also back to the thing about where your skill level's at. Someone that is at a lower skill level is not going to notice the things that someone is at that is is at a higher skill level. They're not going to know to look for those things.
1: Yeah. And I to that point, Brian, I think defining for ourselves what is acceptable, what's what's that curvature that I'm okay with Mm -hmm. and. And a lot of times, again, that impression or that abstraction we we can define. We can control it. And that can be that can be our relief valve.
0: yeah. And then also it may be perfect, but from two different perceptions. like you're talking about the paint colors. Like when I painted this wall behind me, and uh, we should mention that since most of the people that listen to this podcast are audio listeners, that we also have a YouTube channel if you want to actually see some of the things that, Uh, greg held up and we'll put uh, links to them in the show notes as well but uh, when i painted this wall behind me it looks blue right now on the camera but it's actually kind of a dark gray color but that's just how the light and the camera perceive it and how the white balance uh picks up picks it up so everybody's perceiving it differently and how you perceive blue may be different than how i perceive blue and we look at the same blue and we're like yeah we both agree that it's blue but my blue might be bluer than your blue. We yeah. just don't know it. when we have no way to show each other our different shades of blue because we can't look through each other's eyes. That's a little out there. That's, there that, those are the crazy things that go through my mind late at night, but. Uh, <laughs>
1: there's, there's actually a, uh, I, I can't think of the term, Brian, but for, there, there's a word for your ability to perceive color. And in the art world, you see it a lot because artists will lean to the colors that they perceive best or they will lean to the colors they perceive worst because they can't tell that they're overdoing it Mm -hmm. and gosh I, i can't remember what the term is called but it's it's one of those things when you hear it it's like yep that's the perfect definition or the perfect word for what you're trying to describe there but but it is important to realize and and we we might talk about color here or sound or anything else. But I think any creative medium, we, it's all built on perception. You know, are, are you one of those people that focus on details? Are you a higher level person? And I think again, you know, understanding where your client's at uh, is going to help drive where you draw that line and how you say, you know what, it's time to put the pencil down and be done with this drawing.
0: Yeah. And that's the hard thing to determine, especially in the creative field, because, you meet your client when they commission you to build the project and they're interviewing you to see if, yes, this guy can build what I want to build. And I'm interviewing them that, yes, this guy understands what I build, but do we really understand each other? And you hope at the end of the day that, that, you, that you do, but you never really know someone just from that initial meeting or two or three meetings as the project progresses. And that's well, part and- of the thing that drives the insanity of perfection is it perfect enough for them?
1: Right? Yeah. No, I, if I were going to put this in my house, is this good enough for me, yeah. you know? That 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 question can go both ways. Some people are okay with crap and so they'll they'll lower their standards for themselves. Yeah. And other people realize I have to see this thing every day, I want it perfect. Um, but one of the things that can absolutely help out there is sharing your portfolio. If your client is familiar with your portfolio and the level of work that you do, they shouldn't be expecting you to work outside of your your abilities. Now, that doesn't stop people sometimes from expecting perfection out of something because they, mm-hmm. they want to, but the portfolio can be a, a really great driver
0: yeah. I've found that sometimes my portfolio holds back my conversation with the client because they don't see what I'm talking about. Like in this exact interest, there's, there's no leaf carvings on any of my pictures. I had nothing to show them. I just had to be like, we're, yeah. we're taking a leap of faith together here that this is going to work out. You know, And, and what's the
1: worst that can happen? right yeah worst says it
0: happened he's he gets mad at me and i have to rebuild it or yeah or worst case scenario i i lose the money on it and uh, but
1: uh yeah nobody's going to lose their life over it. at least we hope not yeah right so you know there there's a there's very little downside i i suppose at the end of the day other than you know maybe you maybe you lose a customer or you lose a sale here or there and waste a little bit of time
0: but Yeah. And the longer I've done this, uh, I've walked away from more and more jobs just because the customer wasn't right for me. Yeah. And, uh, and I, I want to continue to push myself into new things like, uh, and you've, you've definitely helped influence that. You introduced me to Betty Edwards, um, right. And you introduced me to watercolor. Uh, we had some pretty good conversations about, um, uh what's the guy that did the uh museum with a really frank gary frank gary yes how do i forget his name uh that was my whole point of going down this path here but with betty edwards and frank gary um i am working on some projects now and i hope to be able to bring them to fruition on my youtube channel this year uh where i have i've really just kind of stepped away from the digital SketchUp drawing my designs in there roll out a piece of paper on the shop table and just draw an abstract design of the sculpture I want to build and then build right off that piece of paper and see what happens. And that's kind of, that's kind of where I'm going. I'm really bored with, mortise and tenons and furniture like people are calling like oh yeah i need a i need a nightstand good for you i'm a little busy right here playing in my shop with a pencil and paper you know
1: (laughs) i think that's a great attitude brian you need to be careful or you might become an architect
0: (laughs) right or broke (laughs) don't uh, don't
1: don't follow don't follow my suggestions too closely (laughs) yeah but no i i think those things are wonderful and you know again as creative people, as designers, as as creators and makers, those are incredible things to be able to do is step back and say, I wanna do something different. That is how my opinion, when you see the greats out there, they all have this moment in their career where they get away from the things that are that are must do's. I gotta put food on my table, so I gotta make, I see this all the time in woodworking how many of the big, big woodworkers out there started by making cutting boards? I had a cutting board business. I used to just crank them out, man. I was doing, you know, a hundred cutting boards a month or whatever it is. And they did that and that got them by, but then they realized there's something more and they started making the next thing and the next thing. And then all of a sudden they're doing these incredible things and nothing, nothing wrong with cutting boards. By the way, I, I have, I've never, I've made one. I made an Eddie Van Halen one that I have a video on youtube about i thought it was super cool video didn't do well i don't think any i don't think anybody else thought it was that cool but i did uh but that aside there's, there's nothing wrong with making them i think they're fun experiments and whatever else but at some point you'll probably get beyond that or you'll take cutting boards to a whole different level that you never knew could exist and when when folks take that step back and go wait a minute i can i now have have either made enough money or have a large enough client base that, trust me, I can step away from, uh, gosh, Antoine Pradock, another famous architect, got famous by doing these Adobe buildings. And at one point in his career, he said, no more Mr. Adobe. (laughs) And he went from these nice high-end residential houses to these incredible globally impacting buildings. Like if you look up Antoine Pradock, he is just one of the top designers in the world. And, you know, it was that statement he made, no more Mr. Adobe. I'm changing. I have gone this direction now. And his work took a 180 degree turn and went from okay to, oh, my God. And, you know, doing some of those things, Brian, whether it's being inspired by Frank Gary and Betty Edwards and just drawing by hand and just letting it take you someplace that you didn't know it could go. I think those are incredibly important moments in our lives.
0: Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. Growth, growth in your own personal growth, your own personal skills, your own personal creativity, your own personal uh, pursuit of perfection, uh, what that, whatever that level that is or where you want to go. And as you grow your skills and all your other stuff, you're going to raise your pursuit of perfection of what you find acceptable uh, as you go through life, I think it's just like should trump everything else that you do. Absolutely.
1: Well, this has been this has been a great uh, trip for me. Uh, probably mentally healthy discussion, Brian. To realize number one, I'm not alone, but number two, there's a way out. Uh, but yeah, why don't why don't you close this out here?
0: Yeah, the most important thing is you're you're not alone. You're not the only one that is uh, chasing an unhealthy pursuit of perfection. So uh, we will have all our stuff in the uh, the show notes that we talked about, some of the things that Greg showed up on his uh, on his screen. So if you are a guitar player, definitely check out his skyscraper guitars, check out his Greg's garage. I have some inside information that he is going to be starting a new car build, car restoration project there. And then if you want to find more about me, uh, you can check out brianbenham.com and you'll find links to all my socials. And you are listening to the Maker's Quest podcast. Uh, So our show notes will be at themakersquest.com. Thanks for listening.